So did any of you get a chance to see the Perseid meteor shower last night? This meteor shower was first discovered in AD 36, and every summer about this time, it reappears. And at its height, you can see usually one or two meteors a minute. My wife and I were outside last night taking a look. It was a perfect night for this. No clouds. This only happens about 60 times a year in Michigan, but we had a cloudless sky. There was no moon, and so it was perfect, perfect viewing. And we got an opportunity to see some of these meteors coming down, one of them running about halfway across the night sky until it finally flamed out. Uh, just an incredible sight. And you know, back in the 1700s, uh, Jonathan Edwards developed a theory about meteor showers. He had a theory about everything, I suppose. And uh, he suggested that maybe God gives us meteor showers to remind us that the earth we're dwelling on is temporary. In other words, as we watch those fireballs going through the sky and then flaming out, we are to be reminded that the earth and the heavens themselves will one day perish. And then God will create a new heavens and a new earth for his people. We've been studying the book of Revelation for a while now, and we're going to approach some of these themes in today's text. So if you would please turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 7 through 15. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we have under the seats, you will find this on page 1040. This passage talks to us about the final judgment. I'm going to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this very important text together. So let's bow now. Our Lord, we do thank you for last night's meteor shower, for that brilliant display in the heavens, and for the reminder that it did provide us that all things in this world are passing away, but that you are going to make all things new. And as we come to this next passage in our study of Revelation, we pray that you would help us to, to use our mind's eye to see that coming day. When your judgment throne shall appear in all of its glory and the present heavens and earth will disappear and that all things will be made ready for a new world. Help us, Lord, as we consider this thought today and help us, Lord, to make the right applications to our lives. Lord, we want to be ready for that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the book of Revelation does give us a comprehensive picture of the end times, uh, including a sequencing of future events. And what we've learned so far is that the end times will unfold in this way. First, Christ will rescue his church from the earth by resurrection and translation, an event that could occur at any time. Next, Christ will pour out God's righteous judgments on the world of unbelief. And these judgments will stretch over a period of seven years, and they will come in waves of seven. The repetition of seven symbolizing that these are God's final, complete judgments against the world of unbelief. 
And then finally, Christ will come back with His church to inaugurate His millennial kingdom on the earth. And as that kingdom begins, the devil will be bound and cast into the abyss. All of those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. They will get their new glorified bodies, and they will be ushered into this glorious kingdom. Then all of those who survive that tribulation period, they will be ushered into the kingdom in their natural bodies. And for a thousand years, Christ and his people will have happiness and holiness and peace and prosperity. God's people will have unfettered access to God through Christ. It'll be something like heaven on earth. But what will happen when those thousand years are over? What happens when Christ concludes his millennial reign? Well, this is what today's text will deal with. This is also where our story takes another very solemn turn, because here we will learn that after the millennial kingdom ends, it will be time for the unrighteous dead to receive their final judgments. We have learned that there are two resurrections in the end times. There's the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. One a resurrection unto life, another a resurrection unto judgment. The first occurs at the start of the millennial kingdom so that all of God's people might enjoy its glories. The latter occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom and it seals the everlasting fate of those who are outside of Christ. Today's text describes those final judgments today. So let's turn to the text now. We'll begin with verses 7 through 10. And here we find that the first one that God intends to deal with is the devil himself. The devil himself. Now it seems fitting that the devil should be first. He is the original sinner. And he was the one that instigated the first human sin. And so he began the world on its course of sin and death, and so he shall be the first to receive his final judgment. Here's how it'll happen, verse 7. It says that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, so he was bound in the abyss at the start of the kingdom. He was left there for the full thousand years so that he might not harm God's people, but now As that millennial reign comes to an end, the devil is released from his prison. What will he do when he is released? Well, verse 8, he will pick up right where he left off. Verse 8 says, he will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's a reference to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, simply meaning that the devil will stir up an international coalition against Christ. But this is what he will do. After a thousand years of hellish imprisonment, he'll be released only to go right back to what he was doing before, deceiving the nations. That's because this is what the devil does. It's what he's always done. It's who the devil is. He is the great deceiver. The devil's first appearance in Scripture is Genesis chapter 3. There, the devil enters the Garden of Eden in a deceptive form. He takes the form of a serpent. And the first words out of his mouth are a lie. 
So God had told Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of this forbidden fruit, for the day you eat of it, you will die. The devil's words to Adam and Eve were, you will not surely die. Rather, God is afraid of you. That if you take a bite from this forbidden fruit, you will become like him. You will be God-like as he is. This is why Jesus says of the devil in John 8, 44, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Friends, this is just who the devil is. He is a liar, a deceiver. He delights to stir up strife between God and his image bearers. And at the end of Christ's millennial reign, he will be right back at it, seeking to deceive the nations once again. And he will stir them up against King Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 8. It says he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. He'll be moving among the nations, he and all of his devilish minions, seeking to convince them to take up arms against King Jesus. This is exactly what the devil was doing before he was thrown into the abyss. The end of that Great tribulation period, do you recall how he was gathering armies from around the world to wage war against the returning Christ? Well, just a word from Christ put that down. It was for that crime that the devil was imprisoned for a thousand years. But just as soon as he is released from prison, he will be back at it. He will deceive the nations, he will gather them for battle, and the end of verse 8 says... He will be incredibly successful. Look at the number that will follow. It says their number is like the sand of the sea. Such a great number will he gather that they will be uncountable. Uncountable, at least to us. And you might be wondering here, where are all these people coming from? I mean, we are talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ, right? This kingdom is a, a paradise, Where are all these rebels coming from? Well, last Sunday and a few moments ago, I explained that everyone who enters the millennial kingdom will be spiritually regenerate, but they will not all be in their glorified bodies. So those who died in Christ will be raised. They will get their new resurrection glorified bodies. They will no longer be subject to sin. The millennial kingdom will be populated with millions and millions of them. But you understand that there will also be people who enter that kingdom in their natural bodies. These will be people who came to faith in Christ during that awful tribulation period. And somehow they will survive the Antichrist persecution. And so that when Christ returns... They will be alive at his coming, and these will be ushered into that kingdom in natural bodies. And those in natural bodies will marry and have children, and their children will have children, and then their children will have children, and so on, right on through Christ's millennial reign. You know, many of these children will grow up loving the Lord, but many will not. Just like in our own day. Many children will grow up and reject Christ. Now, they'll have to do so quietly because conditions in the millennial kingdom will not permit open rebellion against Christ. And so they shall harbor their rage silently. 
But what will happen at the end is that Christ will release the devil from the abyss, and then the devil will go out and stir them all up. He will get them to publicly reveal themselves, show their true natures. And there will be many of them, as many as the sand on the seashore. They will take up arms and march against Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. That's where Christ has his throne during his millennial reign. They are marching upon Christ. But the rebellion is quickly put down. It says, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And that is the end of the rebellion at the close of the Millennial Kingdom. And now we have the devil's fate. Verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here we see the devil's final end imprisoned for a season as Christ enjoys his millennial reign, released at the end of that kingdom to stir up the unregenerate, those who have been hiding, hiding their rage. He'll have the opportunity to stir them up, to mount them against Christ, but then they shall be put down, and then the devil shall be cast into the lake of fire where he shall remain forever and ever. And think of this, friends. After that's over, there will be no more devil. No more devil ever again. Never again to cause harm to the world. Never again to tempt God's people. He will be finished. Of course, as we look at this entire sequence of events, we might want to ask the question of why. Why would God ordain things so? Why would God bind the devil for a thousand years only to release him afterwards and to allow him to stir these people up again? Why the need for a final rebellion at all? Well, friends, I believe these events will serve two critical purposes. Number one, it will establish the fact of human depravity for all time. It will establish the fact of human depravity for all time. And here's what I mean. During Christ's millennial reign, this world will be paradise. Every single person will have direct access to God through Christ. Everybody will know God. They will know His ways. They will know His laws. There will be perfect justice from sea to sea. There will be an ideal physical environment. There will be no devil around to lead anyone into sin. Everything will be perfect like heaven on earth. And yet by the end of it, a number too great to be counted will still seek war against Christ. Friends, this will prove for all time that all of the excuses that humanity gives for why we sin, they will all be shown for what they really are, just bogus excuses. 
Now, there are many excuses for human sin today. Sometimes God is blamed. People will say if God would just reveal himself in a, in a tangible way, then people would see that he's real and they would follow after him. That's why people sin, because God doesn't show himself. Others say humans sin because they are raised in broken social structures, and these broken structures break their souls, and so they act out in sin. Other people say that humans sin because they lack all of the basic necessities of life. They don't have enough food, clothing, shelter, health care. And so they, they murder and they steal and they do everything else. Some even blame the, the devil. There's a famous court case from 1981 involving a man named Arnie Johnson. He killed his landlord and in court he, he pled not guilty because the devil had made him do it. The judge threw out the excuse and he was convicted of the crime. But humans have come up with all kinds of different excuses for their sins. But what will happen at the end of the millennial reign of Christ is that all of these excuses will be wiped aside because none of the excuses will hold. There will be no systemic injustices. There will be no unmet needs. God will be right there in the person of his son. Everything will be exactly the way it's supposed to be. The devil won't even be around to cause harm. And yet still, a number as great as the sand of the sea will be internally raging against Christ, wishing they could overthrow him. And all it will take is just the sudden instigation of the devil again, and they will be ready to manifest themselves and take up arms. You see, it will be proven for all time by this sequence of events that the ultimate problem with humanity is not on the outside, it's on the inside. The ultimate problem is that we've got this sinful nature. God didn't give it to us, we gave it to ourselves, and now it's there it's a sinful nature, and it's out of that nature that we act as we do. This truth will be revealed at the end of Christ's millennial reign, and it will set the stage perfectly, perfectly, for God's final judgment on the world of unbelief. That's number one. Then number two, this sequence will also demonstrate why hell must be forever. It will demonstrate why hell must be forever. You see, there are many objections to hell in our day, even among professing evangelicals. The most common objection goes something like this. One lifetime of sin does not deserve an everlasting judgment. It's a charge that God is being unjust they would say, perhaps for 70 years of sinning, 70 years of hell would be appropriate, but certainly not an everlasting hell. It seems out of proportion. It seems wrong. That's the objection. Well, friends, what these objectors fail to understand is the true nature of the unregenerate heart. Consider the devil. For stirring up that rebellion at the end of the tribulation, he will spend a thousand years locked away in hell. What will happen when he's released? He's going to pick up right where he left off, deceiving the nations again, 
stirring them up for battle against Christ. The moment he's released, he'll be doing this. He is not going to come out of a thousand years of hell as a new contrite devil. There's going to be no repentance towards sin. There's going to be no change of heart. If anything, he'll be worse when he comes out because he'll have had a thousand years to resent Christ for putting him there. He'll be worse than ever when he gets out. You see, the devil's nature is fixed. He has set his heart against God and against his son, and that nature will not change no matter what. Give the devil a thousand years in hell. Give him 10,000 years in hell. Give him a million years in hell. He will come out exactly the same. And the world will plunge under the curse of sin and death all over again. You know, the scriptures teach the same thing about fallen human nature. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can a leopard change its spots? Well, neither can you do good who are accustomed to evil. The, the idea here is that the, the unregenerate heart is also fixed in its opposition to God. And apart from the grace of God, that heart will not become contrite. It will not change. It will not uh, become suddenly pliable to the things of God. Put the unregenerate human soul in hell for a thousand years and it will come out just as it was. Maybe angrier because it had a thousand years to resent Christ for putting him there. Put the unregenerate soul in there for 10,000 years, for a million years. It does not matter for them either. So, friends, this is why hell must be forever. It's because that stubborn, sinful soul, be it the devil's or the human's, it will never, ever change. Not on its own. And so if we are ever to have a universe where there is no sin and no death and no misery, no curse, then hell must be forever. And those condemned there must never, ever be let out. And so, friends, God has ordered events such that the justice of an everlasting hell will be vindicated. This will also set the stage well for the final judgment. And now we come to verses 11 through 15. Here we have the final judgment. In these verses, God turns his attention from the devil and his hosts to now unbelieving humanity. We see their fate. Here's how their final judgment will occur. First of all, God's throne will suddenly appear. That's verse 11. This verse also gives us a number of details about this throne. It tells us the size of the throne John writes, then I saw a great throne, a great throne. The Greek word here is pronounced mega. It's a mega throne. This thing is immense, like a mountain. This throne will dwarf all of the lesser thrones we saw in the earlier part of this chapter. And the throne will be immense because God is immense. And the throne must be reflective of him. The scriptures teach us that God is all-powerful, all-wise, everywhere present. He is an immense God. And so when he wants to depict his greatness, he chooses great objects. He will, he will give us a great throne, a judgment throne. We're also told of the color of the throne. It is a great white throne. It's white, just like everything else associated with heaven. In chapter 1, 
Christ has white hair in heaven. Chapter 2, the saints who persevere are given white stones in heaven. Chapter 4, the 24 elders surrounding Christ's throne are wearing white robes. Chapter 19, Christ returns to the earth from heaven riding a white horse, and the army in his train is wearing white garments. This speaks to the holiness of God. God is absolutely morally perfect. There's not one little speck of imperfection in him, not, not one little smudge. He is a burning, shining, white light of perfection. And he communicates this to us by giving us a great white judgment throne. Verse 11, we're also told that the throne will be occupied. John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This figure, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. John 5, verses 22 and 23 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all honor may go to the Son. In Acts 17, 31 says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the one on the throne will be Christ. Christ will be the judge of the unbelieving world. And he, is, he will be seated on his throne. Just as a judge sits down behind his bench when he is about to give his final sentence. Look what happens as this throne appears. Second part of verse 11, it says, And from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Isaiah 50, 51, verse 6, puts it this way, quote, The heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. This speaks to the dissolution of the present heavens and earth. God's throne will appear, a great white throne, the throne from which he will issue his final judgments. And as that throne appears, everything else will vanish away. No more heavens above, no more earth below. It will be nothing but the throne of God and the glory of his Son shining upon it. And then, verses 12 and 13, Christ will summon all of the unbelieving dead. All who are outside of Christ will be made to appear before him. Look at verse 12. John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And down in verse 13, it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So before Christ's millennial reign began, there was a resurrection of the just. Now, as the millennial reign has concluded, there is a new resurrection, a resurrection of the unjust. Death and hell give up their dead. And they stand before Christ. Hell has only been a holding cell for them to this point. Now they will find out their everlasting fate. And every last person outside of Christ will be made to stand before him. Look at the first part of verse 12 again. I saw the dead great and small. Every last unregenerate soul 
from the beginning of time to the end of time. They will all be made to appear before this judgment seat. That means that Cain, the world's first murderer, will be standing there. And all those who perished in Noah's flood, they will be standing before this throne too. And the Pharaoh who kept Israel in slavery, the one who would not let them go, he will be standing before Christ's throne on this day. And so will Ahab and Jezebel and all of the wicked rulers of Israel. And also Pontius Pilate, the one who delivered Christ over to be crucified, he'll be standing before this throne. As will Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini and Osama bin Laden and every other person whose name has long been forgotten but who died apart from Christ. All those who said that it was not worth their while to bow the knee to King Jesus, they will all be there standing before his throne. Just Christ and them and nobody else. And there will be nowhere for them to avert their gaze because there will be no heavens, there will be no earth, there will just be the throne and Christ and them. That's it. They will be made to stand face to face with the Christ that they rejected. And then verse 12, books will be opened. I saw the deads, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And of verse 13, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So here's what's going to happen. Each unregenerate soul will be made to stand face to face with Christ. Christ will open his book of life, the book containing the names of all who belong to him. He will open that book and he will look at each unbelieving soul and he will say, your name does not appear in this book. So he will set it aside and then he will take out the other books. These books will have the names of all those who do not belong to him as well as a listing of every last sin they committed, every thought, every word, every deed. That's why there are so many of these books. And they will say, he will say to each unregenerate soul, here is your name, it's in this book. And here is the record of your life. You did not want to... Come to me in repentance and faith. You did not wish to be clothed in my righteousness. You wanted to stand before me in your own righteousness on this day. So let's look now at the record of your life. Let's see if you can stand. And the record will be read and every sin listed and soon it will become clear that the only just, the only just thing that Christ can do is to condemn the soul. By the time it's over, every last mouth will be silenced. And then everyone will hear their final sentence. Every person will be judged as an individual, each sentence tailored to the record of their life. He will pass his sentence, and no one will be able to charge him with wrongdoing. And then it will be over, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And friends, this will mark the end of the world as we've always known it. The old heavens and the old earth, they will be gone. The devil and all of his hosts, they will be gone. They'll be in the lake of fire. All those who died outside of Christ, they will be gone too. Everything that we have ever known in this world will be gone. The world will be ready for a new heavens and a new earth, one in which righteousness dwells, one in which there can be no sin or misery or death. These are the themes we'll be touching upon in the weeks to come, but for now, may I ask you this concluding question? Really a series of questions. First of all, my friend, as you consider this text and as you examine your own heart, do you believe that your name is written in the book of life? Can you say with absolute certainty, right here, right now, yes, yes, By the grace of God, I know that my name is in the book of life. I have come to Christ in repentant faith, and I know that I've still got a sin nature to contend with, but I know, I know He has forgiven my sins. He has clothed me with His own righteousness. I know that His all-sufficient atonement has been applied to me, and that He will look at me and smile when I see Him. I know it. Maybe you say, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Well, that's okay. Here's how you can know. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And John 3.36 says, he who believes on the Son has everlasting life. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by your own works, lest any man should boast. So if you want to be sure, here's what you must do. You must come to God through Christ in faith, believing in the Son. To believe in the Son means that you understand who He is. You believe that God is real. You believe that Christ is His everlasting Son means that you believe that he came to earth, robed himself in human flesh, lived a life of perfect righteousness, did what we could not do because of our sinful natures. And you must believe that on the cross, Christ voluntarily offered himself as a substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice. And you must trust in the all-sufficiency of that sacrifice, and you must repudiate your sins, and you must come before him as your Savior and your Lord. That's what believing on Christ means. And if you will do that, the Scriptures say you will be born again, given a new life, and your name will be in that book of life. And you'll have a place in the first resurrection and in the millennial kingdom of Christ and then in the glories that follow after. That's how you can know that you're in the book of life. Just believe on Jesus. And you can do that right now from your seat if you wish. Simply go to God, communicate to Him in prayer all of these things. Just pour your heart out to Him, and He will give you that new birth. Life will begin again for you. Won't you do that? Or if you have more questions, 
won't you catch me after the service? Or, or another strong Christian that you know in this congregation, won't you seek one of us out and say, I've got some lingering questions. Can you help me work through these questions? I really do need to get this settled. If you'll do that, you'll find a pastor or any other believer who is eager to help you, eager to help. Well, friend, if you say, yes, I am sure, I know my name is there, are you rejoicing to know that that is true? Understanding that it is all of grace? Because what we learn throughout the book of Revelation is that every one of us, apart from the saving grace of God, we would all be doomed. Our souls will be separated from God forever and ever because none of us has the righteousness required to stand before God on our own. It's all of grace that we are saved. Rejoice. Rejoice in the salvation you have. And then, Christian friend, are you laboring to see other names etched into that book of life? You know, I was so excited to hear a couple of weeks ago that there is a, a small group of ladies in our church getting together on a regular basis to encourage each other in evangelism. They're going through a resource on how to share, their, how to share your faith with others, and they're coming up with names of people that they can witness to, and they're, they're um, working on their communication skills, and they want to get out there, and they want to start reaching more people for Christ. That was such an encouraging thing to hear, and I hope it catches on like wildfire in this church. I hope we have little pockets of people all over this congregation gathering together to encourage each other in evangelism. Imagine what would happen to this church if we were all zealous to reach others for Christ. Are you laboring to see others etched into that book of life? Are you giving yourself to the local church, your time, your talents, your treasures, so that the gospel message can reverberate from here, reaching many, many others? We want others to enjoy the blessings of the new birth. We don't want anyone, anyone standing before that great white throne. Friends, as we consider the state of our own souls before God, and as we consider our responsibilities to those around us, would you bow with me in a final prayer? Lord, we do thank you for this important passage, and pray that you would help us to make the right application of it to our heart. If we read this and say, I don't think I know that my name is in that book of life, would you please, Lord, give us the, the grace and the courage to settle that matter with you today? For those who are assured of that, Lord, would you, would you stir in them a newfound gratitude for the grace that they have received, along with a zeal to talk to others that they might share in this life? Lord, the life that you give is transformative. It changes us in the here and now. It changes the trajectory of our lives, and it changes our eternity. We give you thanks for that. Please use us as instruments to reach others. We commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.